uh, we are in Genesis right now in chapter 2, 1 to 3. And uh, we're just going to spend a little bit of time, like we do every week, talking about Jesus, just from a unique uh, vantage point in the scriptures, a, a starting point that we haven't uh, taken in a while, maybe if ever. We've, we've preached this passage before in reference to other texts, but never as a starting point, I don't think. And if we have, it's been, been a, uh, a long time. So if you want to turn to a Bible, if you have one, or the one in front of you, it's easy to find. It's the first chapter of the Bible, second chapter, Genesis 2, 1 to 3, your devices. Uh, this will be on screen here. Uh, as well, but in context, God is, we were looking at how God created the heavens and the earth, the theological history of that. God is not just doing it, and the Bible is not, not just interested in telling us that he did it, but he's telling us, he's interested in telling us how he did it, and in what capacity uh, he's speaking things into existence, and the types of things he's making, and, and ultimately how they reference him, how they point back to him. Uh, like a, a, a master artist, uh, you know, paints something, and that painting's a reflection of Maybe the, the character and the inspiration and the, the, the story and the personality of the artist, uh, such is true for uh, our, our reality, our creation, and, and God in reference to that. So uh, God has just gotten done creating everything, the heavens and the earth and everything in it, all matter, visible and invisible, in six days. And today is the seventh day when he rests. And so we're going to talk about why that is uh, the case. Uh, Peter uh, talked a little bit about it before that last song, and that song hit on it. Uh, a lot of, actually, uh, old hymns do. A lot of our, our Christian uh, hymns and songs uh, talk about rest because it is a very predominant theological idea. Uh, God rests, and he invites us into that rest. And, and so it's, it's synonymous, actually, uh, with, for Israel in the Old Testament, entering the promised land, uh, land and rest where God is, and those are all kind of interchangeable terms. And then Jesus, of course, uh, talks a lot about it, which we'll get to here in a bit. And so... Uh, let's read, though, to begin. Genesis 2, 1 to 3 is today's passage, and I'll, uh, we'll uh, handle it from this vantage point of um, the question, why did, why did God rest? Why did he, as we'll see here in a second, he didn't have to. Uh, he doesn't get tired when he works, but um, there's still a reason why. So Genesis 2, 1 to 3, verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. All right, so again, this question we're going to start with, and then I'll uh, begin to answer it throughout today. Uh, there's a lot to say here. We're, we're basically going to talk about a, a biblical theology of, of rest and Sabbath, uh, which is uh, an idea he institutes later uh, with some of the laws he gives to Israel, the people that he covenants with, and begins to reveal his plan of redemption uh, through to the world, ultimately uh, Christ being the answer to that. But uh, in any case, we'll get there. But just to rule out a couple of things here to begin, why did God rest? I kind of mentioned this a second ago, but to rule out a couple of things from what we know about God's character, what the scriptures say about him is, is one, uh, he did not rest because he needed it. Uh, the Bible is clear, Psalm 120, this might go without saying, but the Bible says it anyway. Psalm 121.4, uh, God doesn't sleep. Uh, God shall never slumber nor sleep, which in and of itself is pretty amazing if you kind of just really bask in what God just did <laughs> these last six days, and he's speaking everything into existence. It's a lot of heavy lifting, and granted, he's not using his hands, he's speaking things into existence, but it's, it's the same idea. It's, it's, it's the most work that's ever been done. I mean, you can't even like compare it. It's anything human beings have, have ever done, but it's a lot of heavy lifting that he's not really tired from. And though, uh, even though he's speaking into existence, he wants us to know, the scriptures do, that uh, he, is, he is omnipotent. He, he, that is to say, he's all-powerful, and he never uh, needs to, uh, to take a rest. And so it's really this profound thing that we're not going to talk a lot about today, but it is something to put your finger on and say, you know, especially next time you're in the throes of sin, or something, and maybe uh, tempted to question God's goodness and love towards you, or the, the efficacy of his salvation towards us. Just think about this, that God made the universe and didn't break a sweat, and he didn't need to sleep. Uh, in the same way, uh, God is bigger than our sins, and uh, bigger than our doubts, and uh, bigger than our small, or big, or massively big uh, slip-ups. Uh, he, he covers all, and is able to work uh, against all those things to bring us to himself. Uh, so that's the first thing, and that it's not because he needed it. Uh, even more, I think uh, we can say, uh, nor is it to desert us. What I mean by this is that God really never stops working. 
uh, John Calvin, quote John Calvin here, but in the sense that if God were to stop working, the scriptures say in, in Colossians 1 that all things would immediately perish and dissolve into nothing. This is the picture we get of God in the beginning, how he, all things are not just made by him, it's not, but they're not, and they're not coexisting with him in the, in the beginning, but he makes everything, and because of that, he's holding it all together by the power of his word, uh, the scriptures say. So if he were to stop kind of maintaining that, everything would just instantly um, you know, kind of reverse back into chaos and nothingness. And uh, so he, it's not as though he's really stopping working. Um, and, what, and so what kind of is married to that idea is that he's also not resting so as to desert us. He is still working. He's remaining actively involved with his creation, which is really good news. If God is good and he's staying committed to his creation and still working, that's um, maybe a little bit unclear as to how that's exactly good or how that's going to help tell the story here but it's still basically good news god is good he's creating good and beautiful things and he's not giving up he's not waning uh in his active work in in creation so but then it it begs the question all all the more right if god's not really stopping working uh why is he resting and in what sense is this rest then how can we understand this to be rest in what sense is god uh, choosing to rest here calling it rest and writing it into his word uh, as such. Or maybe you could say it this way. I think this is the most helpful way to think about it is, what does God's arrest mean in light of his continual work? So what does the seventh day of creation mean when he rested from all that he had, he had made? What does that mean in light of his continual, never stopping, never giving up work uh, in, in creation? So I think there's two things. There's probably you know, other angles on this. Two big things. One I'll just go over really quickly here that we get immediately from Genesis one, and the context here, and then spend the rest of our time, the vast majority of our time in the second thing, which is uh, more of a big picture approach to this idea in the Bible. So the first uh, answer is he's resting in order to enjoy his creation. Uh, he's resting in order to enjoy it. Genesis one thirty one says, the, the verse right before what we read today, says God, it says that God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. He calls almost everything he makes good, and then at the very end says this is all very good together, especially human beings, the pinnacle of my creation, calls everything very good. So what that tells us is that rest, and when God does rest and admire the beauty of what he has done, that it's, it's actually in its own kind of backdoor, windy road way, it's a promise of God's blessing, that God is like what he makes. You were an accident. I was not an accident. God made you intentionally and he called you very good. He, you're, you're in the, last we talked about this idea of being in the image of God and how it's a specially powerful thing, what that means and, and all of that. So it's, it's a promise of God's present, uh, but also future uh, blessing in different ways as that anticipates Christ and all this, which we'll get to uh, later. But relatedly then, it's here on the bottom. It, I, I think it, it's this uh, reminder too, as we read this in connection with the rest of chapter one, that he always completes what he begins. So, in other words, God never, and we do this, I do this, you know, I start reading books or start a project and I don't finish it. You know, who, uh, everyone does that, right, on some level, or especially some of us. <laughs> like, we start things, don't finish things. God never does that, though. He always, what he starts, he always finishes. He's the great completer. And so, that, that, that's amazing in and of itself, and, and an observation we can make about God, kind of face value level. But, as we apply that to our salvation, it's especially good news, See, if God didn't finish creation, then what we'd have to say about salvation, too, is he may not finish your salvation. He may start to save you, but not finish. He may start to reveal himself to you, but not fully reveal himself to you. He may start a work in your heart, but not complete that work. It's, it's hellish news. It's the worst of news. The fact that God completes creation is gospel news. It's good news. So Philippians 1.6 gets at this. It says, Paul wishes this, prays this upon the church, reminds them of this, the Philippian church. He says, what God began in you he will complete. He will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's, cre- it's kind of creation language, in a sense. So it's the same way. We get a glimpse of that here in Genesis 1. But this is amazingly good news. If God's began a work in you, if you're saved, if you've believed the gospel, you can't lose that. He will carry that work to completion. He will continue working in your heart to make that good news matter. You will fall away. You will not appreciate the good news. You won't reciprocate it. I won't. None of us will. But he will stay committed to us. And no sin's bigger, like we just talked about. He won't break a sweat over your treacherous sin. It's smaller than him. It's, 
he's able to destroy it. He's able to die for it. He's able to fix that problem, and he does in, in his son. So that's incredibly good news. And really what it's saying is rest then is in the completing of creation, resting, ador- adoring what he's made, is that he, he loves us and um, he keeps working. So. so that's the first thing, just some general observations we get there from the immediate context of Genesis 2, 1 to 3. But the bigger thing here, the bigger answer, so again, the question, why rest? The bigger answer, I think, is um, to institute a redemptive historical theological pattern. I'll explain this. But a, a cycle of work to rest. So we see this cycle kind of happen first here in the beginning, but it happens over and over again in different ways throughout the biblical story. A cycle of work to rest that would weave its way through the biblical storyline all the way to Jesus Christ. And so like I said, I want to talk about a couple of things here, starting here, it's our launch pad of sorts, talk about how this theme of rest comes up a little bit throughout the Old Testament here, but then especially how Christ revisits this and and effectively changes things, uh, fulfills things, not saying the former things were bad or wrong, but they were preparatory. Like everything we've been seeing in chapter one, if you've been here, you've you've seen this pattern employed, how God is not just creating things, but he's creating things that reflect him and ultimately will point to his son. The Sabbath is just picking up if, if the same, it's the same paradigm. The Bible's clear. This is, uh, this is it. So in the Old Testament then, starting there, so uh, thousands of years later after, uh, after um, Israel is identified as this covenant people that God will begin, as I said before, to reveal his plan of redemption through God gives laws uh, to them, commandments, uh, the Ten Commandments being kind of this cornerstone of them, but there are many more of them. One of those Ten Commandments, so the fourth commandment, was to keep a weekly Sabbath. But he says why. In Exodus 20, he says, because God created the six days, and on the seventh day, uh, he rested. So, again, remember the Sabbath day here, in verse 8, keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. But look at this because here. Because, or for, in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. So it's very God-centered rationale. And he, it says it more clearly in Deuteronomy 5, a little bit later on in the story before Israel was entering the promised land. Moses speaks to the people and says, you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you up from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And so part of the Sabbath day, more clearly here, a little later in the story, was so that they had time to remember the Exodus. They had time to remember that they were enslaved in Egypt. They weren't in the promised land that God formerly gave them. That was a problem. God went to save them through Moses and bring them up back uh, through the desert and back into the promise. And Sabbath day then was to help them commemorate that and have time to remember that God worked mightily for them and they rested in it. So so in terms of the why then, this is just two small aspects of this. It comes up a lot more in, in the Old Testament. But in terms of the why, why did God rest? It's a little bit foggy still, but it's, it's still clear that God himself rested first. God rests first. Does it make people and say, I want you to rest right away? God's starting this himself. He's embodying it. Then he wants rest keeping or Sabbath keeping for Israel to rest one day a week for God-centered reasons, not man-centered ones. So again, meaning... The Sabbath was meant to teach them something about him. It was meant to give them time to remember his grace, how he saved them, how he went to work while they rested and just watched him save. And so to use some of the language here from Genesis 2, 3, uh, God, if you've been here and you know this in chapter 1, God never calls a day holy except this last day. He's calling a holy and blessed thing to rest, a holy and blessed thing to complete and to work and to save in, in this capacity, uh, you could say, but, but especially to, to rest. And so because of that, we can say that things are holy that are aligned with this Sabbath. Things are holy that are aligned with rest. Things are, it's a holy thing to be brought into this, as Israel kind of was on a ceremonial level throughout their history. So in other words, it's a holy thing, a blessed thing, for people not to be working but resting before God. That this isn't a, a call to quit your jobs. It's a, it's, it's a theological idea to, to be resting before God and, and to cease our striving. That's a holy thing from God's perspective, not just from us. But God wants this. He wants us to know that it's a rest in his eyes 
this cycle from work, but then, ah, resting. The idea of a Saturday. The idea of weekend. But theologically, the idea of before him having a posture of, it's not about me. Resting before him is good and holy and sanctified and should not be touched or messed with because it's the essence of what it means to be, to be saved. It's a holy thing to remember how much God has done for us and how little we've contributed to our salvation. That's a holy thing. Uh, maybe some, some of you heard this before. I, I know I heard this years ago when I was a younger believer. Um, took it at face value until I knew better later on. But um, it's a perspective on the law that we would say we hold here, the law of the Old Testament, which includes God saying to Israel, keep a Sabbath day holy and all that. Um, that we say we would hold at Hiawatha. You don't have to. This is, a, this is an open-handed thing here for us to be clear. Don't feel bad if you don't quite understand this yet or, or agree with this. It's fine. But just for your understanding from our perspective, fits here. The, the teaching I years ago held to was that the law was a doctor's prescription to sick people. And that includes the Sabbath. And so what, what God kind of saw in Israel is people that work too hard. And he said, here, every seven days rest. That's my gift to you. The problem with that position is that Israel was stoned to death for not keeping it. It fits quite poorly with the idea that God's just a good doctor giving you a pill. So if, if God's just saying, well, I want you to get rest, but you know what? If, if you want to work, that's okay, but if you really need rest. How does it fit that God would have people stoned to death outside the camp for it? What fits better is to say this is actually much more about physical. It's not just doctor's prescription. What's at the core of the Sabbath idea is something more God-centered. It strikes more at belief. It strikes more at what do we think about God when we think about God? What do we think about salvation when we think about salvation? Are we trying to work for him? Or are we resting in the fact that he works for us? And so what's at the core of breaking the Sabbath was not just this random law, oops, I worked by accident. It was God's not sufficient. They're embodying that in their actions when, Sabbath, when the Sabbath was broken. It's God's not important. God's not enough. God's not able. God's not Savior. I'm my own Savior. We'll, we'll come to this more a little bit later on as we approach the New Testament, how this is wrapped up in the gospel itself through Christ. But that's this idea here that it's being, so it's actually a severe thing. It was such a big deal for God in his commandments towards Israel that to break it was uh, worthy of, worthy of, of death. So, uh, God-centered, in other words. God-centered, 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 not just this, you know, uh, man-centered, here's a little thing for you to do once a week and, and, to, and to rest. That's, a, that's important as we approach the, the New Testament. So when we get to the New Testament then, later on, when Jesus comes on the scene, things change. In some, in some sense, you could say some things stay the same, but Jesus calls himself a new thing a lot. He calls himself new wine. A lot. He says, I'm new wine. You can't put new wine in, in old wineskins or it will, it will burst. You have to have new wine and new wineskins so it can kind of age with the wine and grow and stretch and all of that. So he's saying, I am cha changing things to the Jews who are hearing him teach and tweak things in the law, change the law and be this new thing, fulfill things and abrogate things. I am what it was pointing to. And because of that, I'm, I'm changing things. And you have to accept me as a new thing. If you try to fit me into this old, this old mode, you won't see me in the right capacity and you won't understand what I'm teaching. And so things change. But, and it's all happening, remember, in the context, and we've talked about this in this series so far, so if you haven't been here, the context of the Bible hanging together uh, kind of around two creations. Uh, a, a first creation, which we've been reading about in Genesis, physical one, and a second creation that Jesus is a harbinger of and an agent of, a spiritual one, in the New Testament. And so the New Testament gospel accounts then the first four books of the the New Testament being creation narratives. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these theological histories of Christ's birth and his ministry, death, and resurrection, those are creation narratives because they use creation language. So it's not just this idea, this neat little metaphor that some people like to try to line up. It's actually very explicit. It's why uh, in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, I think it is, Jesus, or Paul says that if you believe in Christ, you're a new creation in him. If you're, if you're saved here today, if you're a Christian, you are, in God's eyes, and just in in reality, you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. God's making things over again. So as the Bible hangs together in these two, these two creations, the former one points to the new and gives way 
to this latter better one. They kind of inform each other, and so we've been reading both, uh, as the Bible does, uh, with this type of synergy or this type of relationality between the two. So all this is happening with Sabbath stuff then, going back to that specifically, it's all happening uh, in the context of the idea that the New Testament Gospels are to be read as types of creation narratives, as always making everything new. So if this is the case, then we would expect uh, to see not just general creation language in the Gospels, which remember we're seeing, we're seeing uh, all kinds of creation language like in John chapter 1 we've been looking at and um, in other Gospels where creation language is used to talk about what what in the world Jesus is doing when he comes into the world. But we'd also expect, uh, if this is the case, to specifically see, in light of today's theme, allusions to the work-rest cycle that God began all things with. We'd expect to see Sabbath talked about. We'd expect to see God working again. We'd expect to see God finishing that work. And we'd expect to see God resting. And that's exactly what we see. Uh, John 5, 16 to 17 says, And this is uh, why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things, healing people, telling cripples to walk and take their mat and go home, on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. Which is creation language. He's working again. He's going to work again. He's starting something new through his son. It's interesting to note here that this uh, brief exchange happens on the Sabbath and in regards to a Sabbath. The, the Pharisees, these re Jewish religious leaders, are upset that Jesus is kind of encouraging a, a bit of a breaking of the law here and a change. Uh, they're upset that he's working and or encouraging work on, uh, on a Sabbath day. But Jesus says, basically, uh, God is working again. That's his answer. Uh, I, well, my answer to you is God's working. Are you going to, is God wrong to start working again, whether it's Sabbath day or not? He can do what he wants, and I can too. I'm the son of God. My father is working and <clears throat> until now, and I am, I am working. A new thing, then, is replacing the old thing. We'll come back to that. But look at this last line, though, again. It says God's working again. He's creating again, creation language, through Jesus. And, and if this is the case, then, uh, again, we'd expect to see this new creation come to completion in a sense as well. If Genesis 1 and, and 2 language is being used, that same cycle of working, finishing work, and resting, we'd expect to see the same kind of language uh, of finishing the work being, uh, being employed too, and that's, again, exactly what we see. On the cross, uh, Jesus borrows words from Genesis 2, an allusion to it anyway, in saying his final words on the cross were, it is finished. It's what he shouted out before he gave up his dying breath. The, the work of creation, it's, and it's, again, echoing Genesis 2.1, which says God finished his work. Like God worked six days, then rested, so was Jesus here. He's finishing the work. He's clear that how the work began in his earlier part of his ministry, and even the earlier part of the Passion, when he was arrested and, and striped and, and tortured and nailed to a cross, that, that's being completed now. The work of recreation is happening through his death kind of through his ministry and teachings and healings, but especially here through his death on a cross for our sins. So it's there then that he's finishing this new work, the, the work of restoration or the work of bringing new light into a dark world like God did in Genesis 1 or the work of pu pushing back darkness, the work of bringing order to chaos, the work of bringing life from non-life, the work of speaking into the nether and making things be that weren't. All those things that God did in the beginning, he's doing again on spiritual levels. And he's saying here, again, like God did in the beginning, he said it's finished and it's all good. Here he's especially saying it's finished and it's good. It's good that the Lord would die for, the, for his people. It's glorious to him. It's beneficial to sinners like us because it's him working and not a call for, for us to. So he, he works, he finishes the work, and then again, if we'd expect this pattern to continue, we'd expect to see rest happen right after the finishing, right, of, of work. And that's, again, exactly what we see. He rests after his death. Not just in the sense that his work was finished, but Jesus literally rests in a tomb on what day of the week? You guys remember? When is he, when is he buried mostly? Three days, but when's the primary day he's in the tomb? Saturday. The seventh day of the week, Right? Sabbath. On the Sabbath day, he's literally physically resting. On that last seventh day, you could say, of 
the spiritual new creation that kind of constitutes the, the gospel stories in the New Testament. He's resting from his labors on the cross. Luke 23, so all the gospels are, are really careful to note this, that it's really important Jesus did not die on a Wednesday. You know, if you like Wednesdays, praise God, it's great. But when, Wednesdays, that, that's not, it's, his, the timeline here is crucial. Uh, there's Passover stuff going on here, if you know that, which we won't talk about today, and, um, and that, that, that ceremony's being fulfilled here too, but also creation's being fulfilled. He's working throughout Holy Week, you could say. He finishes the work on that sixth day, the Friday, and that seventh day, he rests. He rests before the new era begins with the resurrection on the first day of the new week on, um, on Sunday. So in Luke 23, 53 to 54, one example of this, just the, how the scriptures are careful to show it's a Sabbath day. Uh, and they had to bury him before the Sabbath. So for the Jews, uh, 6 p.m. was the beginning of the next day. And so 6 p.m. Friday was the start of Saturday, the Sabbath day, essentially. So they're racing to bury him before then, uh, these individuals, Joseph of Arimathea being one of them. Uh, so it says, then Joseph took Jesus' body down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb in a cut stone, or a tomb cut in stone. It was the day of preparation. And here it is, the Sabbath was beginning. So this is just, uh, you know, minutes really, uh, maybe hours, but it's a close period of time before that 6 p.m. starting point of, of, of the Sabbath, and he, and he spends it there. So um, in chart form, if you like charts like me, uh, first creation, God works, God finishes his work, and he rests on the seventh day. And the second creation, God and Jesus go to work again to renew how the first creation was marred by sin. Uh, Jesus says it's finished on the cross. We see that he's working there. He's, he's working for sinners like us by dying for our sins. And then he rests in the tomb for three days, primarily though on the seventh day, Saturday, on the Sabbath, in between Good Friday and Easter from Luke 23. So what this is saying, like everything we've been seeing in Genesis so far, is that the Sabbath is not about you. It's not ultimately for you or me. It's for Christ. It's for the sake of him revisiting the idea and fulfilling what God started out to do in, in the beginning. It's so that he might revisit the themes and fulfill and bless and call things holy in the way God did in the beginning, but just here so in, in, a, spiritual, in a spiritual manner. So when all this is occurring, kind of on a big picture level here, Christ in his ministry is, this is why he's teaching about things uh, in regards to the Sabbath that are not necessarily anti-Sabbath, but they're changing things. He's breaking the Sabbath. He's, he's quoting um, Old Testament passages about King David who broke the Sabbath and saying to the, to the Jews, haven't you read here how King David broke the Sabbath but wasn't, wasn't punished for that? So you should see in your Old, in your old Testament, Jews, Israelites, that even in your scriptures, this day was coming, how God was hinting there that there's going to be someone who would come, a king like David, who would be greater than the law. And now I'm here. This shouldn't shock you. This isn't brand new. It's happening even way back here. He's quoting passages like that, which that's a, another whole deal I don't have time for today. But, but this is why he's butting heads with the Jews. Uh, he gets them in a lot of trouble with them. Uh, they, they weren't expecting this type of law-changing Messiah law-fulfilling Messiah, and they misunderstood. And it's actually the thing, the Sabbath, and what Jesus did with that, that led the Jews to start to plot to kill him. Uh, Matthew 12 is one of the places that says that, where it says Jesus did some things on the Sabbath, and it says from then on, the Jews set out to plot to kill Jesus. They, were, uh, they, were, they had absolutely no category for what was going on. It was, it was the primary, not the only thing, one of the primary things with his interpretation of the Old Testament that led him led them to seek out to, to kill him. But again, he wasn't really anti-Sabbath. He was just all about fulfilling and replacing it. So what, what I mean is this. I'll talk a little bit more about this as we uh, go on here for the rest of our time. And there's so much to say, but just to give you an idea, what I mean by all of that, what the scriptures mean, is this. Jesus never tells people to keep the Sabbath. He never tells people to keep a Sabbath in his ministry. But... He does tell people to find rest in him, the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Matthew 11 is one of these places that says there, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So for us, for some of us as Christians, that might be 
a, a little less shocking, but you've got to put yourself in the shoes of a first century Jew who uh, had to keep a Sabbath and whose parents, grandparents, great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandparents, it was their legacy, their tradition, their law. It was their, it was their ceremony. It was their day-to-day, their week-to-week. Now, to hear Jesus say, talk about rest and not talk about the law, talk about himself, I mean, either that led people to, to worship him as Savior and Lord and Messiah or to crucify him. It's exactly what we see, right? You can't be neutral with Jesus. People heard this kind of stuff and they said, we're going to crucify the guy, or they followed him and worshiped him. There's no, there's no third way. There's no, ah, oh, I just kind of like, yeah, there's Jesus again, kind of talking about the law in a crazy way. We know he's wrong, but like, you can't do that. No one does that. There's only two ways. Same with us. We crucify the guy or we worship him. He's not just a good guy. We can't just categorize him as this thing on our shelf that we go to for advice every once in a while. He didn't leave that to us. He says, I am the way. The Sabbath kind of hinted at the way for an Old Testament period of time. It was a placeholder of sorts. It was a law that pointed to me, but now that I'm here, it's, it's passing, it's gone, it's a shadow that's, that's kind of outlived its purpose, and now I'm here to fulfill it. Now, now you look to me. Don't go to the law anymore. I give you rest. And it's a deeper kind of rest. It's rest for souls. Something the law could never do. Uh, the law prodded from the outside, gave us physical bodily rest. We wake up the next day and say, man, that was a good Sabbath. I feel energized. My cold isn't as bad as it was on Friday. Let's go to work. But what the rest of Christ does is it says, God loves you. And he died for your sins. And he gives you soul rest. It gives you rest from the inside out. It says you, you're saved eternally. It says you're okay with God. It says no matter what you've ever done, ever, in mind, thought, or deed, is, is recon- it's dealt with. It's destroyed. Christ has dominion over it now, as we talked about last week. So he then is, uh, he's not only, as we just talked about, resting on that holy Saturday and kind of reliving out what God did in Genesis 1, but he's inviting us into the rest. He's saying, I am the ultimate ceasing of work. I am the ultimate one who invites us into a type of existence that doesn't strive anymore. And this Sabbath's every day. It's not once a week. This type of Sabbath is, is literally every moment of your New Testament Christian life. It's, it, once a week was a hint, whisper. Not that, not great, right? Good maybe, but not great. What's great is a new kind of Sabbath that's about Jesus that's every single moment of your life. And where you don't ever have a moment of non-rest uh, before him. It's a type of salvation that doesn't say do, but rest before God, which is, again, if you're, com- if you're into comparing religions, uh, throw that one in your uh, you know, to-do list in terms of looking at how other religions never say this. It's all other religions in some fashion are about do, 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 do. Try harder. Christianity says rest. Stop striving. Stop working so hard. It's not about you. It's about God in the beginning who said, let everything be that I want to be and then rested. It's his story that we're just sharing and kind of entering into and Christ being again the the goal of all that. Or as Psalm 46.10 says, be still and know that I am God. So it makes this kind of complicated then as we, and we're trying to talk about this on a very big picture level today, uh, the Sabbath idea is that when we ask the question, as we always should about the Old Testament, how do these things point ahead to Jesus? There's two answers for it that complement, but are a little bit different. And so it's these two things here. It's, it's the first thing we talked about, where, where God working and resting proceeds and points to Jesus working and resting in a, in a new way on the cross and in, in the, the tomb and ultimately the empty tomb in the New Testament. But it's also about the idea that when Israel was invited into that rest and, and was commanded to keep a Sabbath, it, it predicted and pointed ahead to the principle of being saved by grace, not by, not by our works, which is basically what, on the top line there, what Jesus was working and resting to, to accomplish. He's dying for our sins, so the bottom principle might be true. But see how they're a little bit different but complementary? Jesus works, finishes the work, and rests for you. So you don't have to anymore. But because it's another way of just saying, it's my grace that saves you. So enter into that rest. I'm working and resting for you, but I'm also bringing you into 
that final Sabbath idea of being close to God and not striving anymore, but just being saved by what I do. So, so both, both are true. I think it's why, again, that going back to Genesis, why God blesses the day and calls it good and, and holy because the day Christ died and was buried and rose again was the most blessed Sabbath weekend of history when God truly finished his work that we might be saved and that we cannot say that I've got something to add. That you, you, we can never add to what God says finished. God said finished in the beginning and he says finished at the cross so that no one says, oh God, you forgot to make this type of creature. You know, or at, at the cross you forgot to save me from this type of sin or it's not big enough. Like we can't, nor can we say Jesus is good but plus this capacity because what God says finished, we, who can say unfinished, right? No matter how we feel about it, God says it's finished. That should be sufficient for us. Him dying for our sins, and that's it. So to start to uh, summarize this a little bit here, um, the, the, the point of Genesis 2, 1 to 3, then going back to that, you know, as we read this into the whole storyline, is not to think immediately about the Sabbath law and think in an Old Testament way, because God's Sabbath, so do I need to. That's not the point. It's never talked about that way in the, the New Testament. And again, even the Old Testament saying, to make sure that was heard, uh, it's more about God because he rested first. He didn't create people and on the eighth day say, okay, now start to keep this Sabbath. It was thousands of years, thousands of years, between when God rested on the seventh day and when he gave that law to Israel. I mean, that alone is an argument from chronology should say that it's more about what God did than it, what was happening in between those thousands of years. No one's keeping the Sabbath. Things were fine. You know, God was still doing his thing. God was still starting to reveal himself to people and to Abraham and his family and his kids and, and Israel, you know, before that and their family. And we'll read actually a lot of these stories here throughout Genesis and, and we'll end with mention of the Exodus, but that's only after that that God gave the law. There's no Sabbath before that. So the Sabbath... For Israel alone, I mean, just as an argument from chronology, it's not the ultimate thing. It was, it was God. So, so that's important. But, and actually, in the New Testament, it actually says, you know, we've been making an argument from silence here, which is still, I think, pretty powerful to say Jesus never commanded the Sabbath. But the New Testament actually also says explicitly to not keep a Sabbath. In Colossians 2, 16 to 17, it says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you, speaking to the church, in questions of food and drink, so uh, fasting, what you should eat, what types of food, stuff like that, or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That, that last line is huge. It's, it's undergirding everything I just talked about today. The Sabbath was a shadow of Christ. Christ is the substance. But now Christ is here, and because he's here, these things abrogate and change. And so a lot of what's going on in the, in the New Testament church is you have Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, Jewish Christians who are having a harder time not keeping the laws they did for their whole life, which you understandably so, and Gentile Christians who are kind of like, well, why do I have to not eat pork now? Or why do I have to not, why do I have to keep a Sabbath now, which I never did before? And Paul's trying to help them get along and love each other across those differences while emphasizing this kind of Gentile, non-Jewish freedom at the same time, saying, actually, Jews, you should change because there is no more Sabbath. There is no more ceremonial law. It's all been, point, it's all been fulfilled by Christ, so keep Christ and, and rest in him. And so he, he writes accordingly. So that, that one of the big takeaways here then, and, I'll, and I'm going to say it this way, I, I know there's different perspectives in the room, and that's fine, but I'm going to share our perspective. And I think right in the spirit of Colossians 2, it's hard to get around, um, and that is, to all of you and to myself afresh, do not keep a Sabbath. If you are, stop it. Uh, it's not a New Testament principle. Uh, it's the fourth commandment of an old system uh, that's been absorbed in Christ and, and fulfilled in him. Uh, it's not for, you're not under that anymore. Uh, some may, uh, in kind of a casual, it's more about rest than Sabbath kind of way, understand that. This is not about not valuing weekends or, uh, you know, not valuing rest. This is about Sabbath and being under a Sabbath law. We are not under a Sabbath law. And in Colossians 2, it's actually saying here, don't sweat 
when others pass judgment on you uh, for not doing it. Uh, and that this might be from a Christian perspective or it might be from a uh, non-Christian perspective where you know, someone might say, well, your Bible says in Exodus 20, whatever, whatever, uh, the fourth commandment is uh, keep a Sabbath. You're not keeping a Sabbath. Hypocrites. You might get that from a non-Christian. Uh, or from inside the church where people are um, looking down on you, con- other Christians condescending in a condescending manner. Uh, this says, don't sweat that. Don't sweat that. Love them and be patient with those people. Um, they may seem more spiritual, those who keep Sabbaths, because they're doing something that's ascetic, uh, that is kind of like, well, it's you know, kind of liturgical and spiritual, and they're kind of denying themselves comfort a little bit. They may seem more spiritual, but they're not. Uh, to be spiritual is to be filled with the Spirit, and to be filled with the Spirit is to receive from Jesus and to rest, to rest in him, not, uh, not by keeping a Sabbath day. In fact, um, since we're in a Lenten season, just a couple of comments here too, and also since Colossians 2 <clears throat> mentioned food and drink, and Jesus addresses this issue with fasting as well. If, if you remember that, um, at one point, John the Baptist disciples talks about, or they, they approach Jesus and John's in prison, and they're, they're kind of like wrestling with this new thing, this new way of spirituality that Jesus was a harbinger of, and they were saying, why aren't your disciples fasting? Why aren't you guys fasting? And and the Pharisees, the Jews, they're saying the same thing. Why aren't you fasting? And Jesus' answer is just phenomenal, which I, I wish I had time for. Uh, we preach through this in Matthew. And I'm going to say a few things on this that might raise more questions and answers. I've just got to say it. Talk to me afterwards. I can fill in gaps. Um, but his answer is basically, they're not fasting because I'm here. Because they're at a wedding, not a funeral. He says, is it, is it right for wedding guests to uh, uh, dress in black and uh, sit in the corner and not eat the food they're given and not be happy for their friends who are getting married? Is that right to do? Is that appropriate to do? So would it be if people were fasting when Jesus was around. And after that, he says, there will be a time people will fast when I'm taken away from them. He's referring to his, his death and his time in the tomb, but now he's back at the resurrection. It's the same thing. It's a wedding. It, it's, a, it's feast time. Uh, the, the time of fasting is over. In fact, in the Old Testament, there's only one day Israel fasted anyway. It was Yom Kippur. It was the Day of Atonement. Every other festival they had was a feast. So uh, God is way more about food than, than not food. But anyway, there's a lot to say about that. I know that there's other things going on there. But just saying, even from an Old Testament perspective, this is going on. How much more then is, is the idea in the new era where Jesus is bringing an end to things and, and talking about uh, food in, in this capacity. So our invitation then to you guys, um, whatever you do here, and you know, we realize there's some gray area with Sabbath keeping and with, with uh, fasting on certain levels, but to re- just to refer to fasting here for a second, some gray area. Uh, our encouragement for you guys and for all of us <clears throat> is to live squarely and freely in the joyful limelight of the empty tomb. Live squarely and freely in the joyful limelight of the empty tomb. And, you know, uh, one way to express that might be to have a big fat hamburger during Lent. You know, every day. Not to, like, stick it to people. The, the point of this is because you can, we can be arrogant and have bad motives from any perspective, right? So we got to, the, the, the point's not gluttony. That's not okay either. But it, it, it's just to say we're free. God's not stingy. He didn't die on a cross for our sins in the way he did to say, yeah, now you can't eat chocolate for a week for 40 days a year. It's ridiculous. We're at a wedding, or can't eat meat for 40. We're at a wedding here. He's not dying for that. And that, that's not even biblical anyway. And that whole church calendar stuff came centuries after the church was born anyway. So there's that whole argument too. But just in terms of like the spirit of the gospel argument is uh, in this whole Lenten thing. And people ask us, you know, why we don't do Ask Wednesday services and and, you know, encourage fasting during Lent, and that's a few reasons why. It's, it's not biblical, uh, explicitly. Not that people are sinning when they're doing it either, necessarily either. would never say that. But, um, the, but from what Christ says about this new wine, this new era, in the spirit of what he's doing with the Sabbath, he's doing with fasting. Uh, he, the bridegroom's here. We're at a wedding. We're not at a funeral. Eat the food in front of you, and be, take pictures, and be happy, and dance. 
even if you don't like to, you know? It's not about you, it's not about you at a wedding. It's not about you at a wedding. It's about the bride and groom, and, um, you know, kind of the spirit of that, we're supposed to rejoice, right, uh, for the sake of the bride and the groom. And, and actually, in, in that metaphor, we are the bride anyway. We're, we're the bride, and Christ is the bridegroom. And so the invitation here then is to, to live, bring the Sabbath back into this uh, just for a little bit, um, but also fasting is to, to, to thank God richly for providing us all things to eat. Again, God's not stingy, uh, especially he's provided his son's body and blood to be thankful for those things. Um, but with Sabbath idea is um, to live squarely and freely in the joyful limelight of the empty tomb. Uh, now, that, that does not mean, in regards to the Sabbath, to be clear, does not mean, like I said before, don't rest. That's different. Rest is good. But it is to say you are no longer under Sabbath law. Jesus made that crystal clear in his ministry, as does the rest of the New Testament. Uh, rather, we are under Christ and him crucified, buried, raised for our sins. And so this is about rest in Jesus. Sabbathing in his gospel, recognizing that it's a holy thing to be still before the Lord and to think about his grace, to, to have a God who works for us. Uh, and that's actually, that's that kind of strange, you know, last week we talked about this, how God paints himself more as like a, a waiter giving food to people at a table and a servant who wash people's feet than he does an angry judge, though he's right to be angry over sin, and he is a judge. But this is the type of lover of our souls that he is. Um, he's the one who works, works for us. The invitation then is to look ultimately uh, to this couple of pictures here. Got to mention Hebrews 8, but so be it. Uh, work to rest is this is what it's about. The Sabbath's not about you, it's about him. Though we're invited into that, and Israel was for a time in certain ways, and Christians are in a spiritual fulfilled kind of way, this is what the Sabbath's about. Christ worked for us there, and he rested for us there to bury our sins and take them far away from us. And like God calls all, like God calls seventh days good, there's a pattern of this in the Bible. The first seventh day was, was uh, he looked at all things and called everything good. And now he's calling things, whole, uh, he called it holy, the seventh day holy rest. He's calling this ultimate seventh day very good, and we should as well. Like we can't, you might not feel that, we can't look at this and say it's not good. It's God's calling his, his son's work for us on the cross good and beautiful, and us in that. He's looking at this and saying, keep that holy, strive after that. He loves us, he died for us, he he was laid to rest for us. He was raised for us. It's finished. There's nothing we can do to add to it. Like there's nothing anyone could do to add to the first creation. No, people aren't even barely made yet. But to God, our salvation is beautiful, complete, and worthy of gazing at. And, and so the invitation then, and, and I'll read Hebrews 4 here to close. Hebrews 4, 9 to 11, and, and I, if you want to read Hebrews 3 and 4, I'd encourage you to. It's a New Testament book that talks a lot more about all the stuff I did in a more lengthy capacity uh, about Sabbath rest and about Old New Testament relationality and stuff like that. But kind of a summative way or a paragraph or whatever here at the end of chapter 4, he says to the church, So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, speaking about Christ and the gospel. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So let us strive to enter that rest. You see what the Sabbath's about? It's about stopping working. It, it's about, before God, uh, resting from your works like God did and receiving from him. Then there's this call, though, to strive hard after entering that rest. That's what you should work hard at. Not giving up meat for Lent, uh, but striving to enter the gospel of Christ. Enter the fact that you can do nothing to save yourselves. This is not passive, you guys. It's not something that you can say I've done if you became a believer five years ago or 50 years ago. It's what about today? Are you striving? Do you feel like it characterizes your spirituality? I'm actually striving after the rest of God, striving after grace, striving after to know Jesus better and more than myself, striving to know what he has to give me, striving to know that we're saved by grace, not by works, more and more and more and more in the context of the church and other people um, who do or do not know that yet. How, how, what does it look like to strive after that rest? That's, that's what we're called to really strive after here um, in, in the joyful freedom that we have uh, given us uh, from the Lord and, again, the work and rest that he accomplishes for us. So 
that's my last invitation to you guys, whether you're saved or not. Uh, believe the gospel again. Believe it for the first time. Strive to enter the fact that God wants you to rest before him. He wants to take your sin away. He's not saying, accomplish this list of works for me. He's saying, come rest before my feet. You don't have to take that invitation if you don't want to. It might be too offensive to some of you. You want to work for the Lord. You want to, you know, be his servant, not realizing that he wants to be your servant first um, and ultimately and always. He wants to give you food, the food of himself. He wants to serve and wash your feet. He wants to ultimately, um, so that you might not have to, be tortured in your place and die for your sins. That's the visceral reality behind the cross is God died for sinners. <laughs> Glory to God. That's good news uh, that God came to do that for us. Uh, and, and again, that's much more freeing thing than saying, God died for your sins, now don't eat a hamburger for the next 40 days. It's not what he wants. It, he, he wants, God died for your sins so that you might rest before him and enjoy all things in creation that he has to give you. Um, so, invite you to that. Let me pray for us. God, thank you so much for the grace of the gospel in, in Genesis 2, 1 to 3. How it's you who work there, it's you who rest there, so that no one can say it's about us working or resting there, ultimately. This is you. You're putting the characters in play. You're, you're setting the stage for the stories later to be told. Ultimately, one in your son who would come to revisit and recreate and save and make us all new again, to give us a second chance, a third chance, a billionth chance, because it's by grace we're saved, uh, not by works, so that none may boast. That's what Genesis 2, 1 to 3 is about. So help us to rest in that idea today, to have, find a Sabbath rest in God, uh, not in law, but in God, and to strive to keep entering that over and over again uh, by faith, not by what we do but, uh, or morality, but by faith. So thank you so much uh, for saving sinners, uh, for coming into the world to be that new thing uh, over and against the old way of, of fasting, uh, traditional or law or, or Sabbath, to fulfill those ideas, to be that bridegroom and bring that new way of joy and kind of anti-downtroddenness into uh, the world. You are not a killjoy, and we praise you for that. In Christ's name, amen.